Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she can lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with poles. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Father in heaven, we now ask for your presence here with us in a powerful way that the word that you have written here for us would not go unknown by us, but rather you, by your illumination you would anchor it deeply in our hearts. Lord, make it so. We desperately need that. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84. Psalms are right smack in the middle of your Bible. You should be able to find Psalm 84 fairly easily. One of the perks of uh, being a pastor is that uh, I suspect slightly more often than what you do, I get invited to people's houses. Uh, I get invited over for lunch or for dinner or something along those lines, uh, and it's a great perk on my behalf. Uh, usually I suspect people don't do it because they like me, but rather because they want to have the pastor over. And so consequently they prepare the house usually pretty well, and dinner is usually pretty good and those kind of things. So one of the perks is that I get to go and visit people in their houses, and things usually are are really beneficial, really up to snuff, and I really like them. Now, I don't particularly have much of an artistic uh, bent to me. I'm not very aesthetically inclined. Um, but I can tell that certain things are nice and what I like, and, uh, you know, either the way the house is situated or the particular direction in which it's oriented or the way that the de it's decorated or something along those lines. It's usually a great joy of mine to be able to tell people, hey, I really like the way this particular thing or the way the house is set up or how you've decorated it or something like that. There's a, an excitement there on my part to be able to share a little bit of those things. Of the five or six different places where I have lived in my lifetime, I have really enjoyed what uh, God has blessed us with. Uh, and I particularly appreciate the way Kelly and I have made the houses that we live in kind of home for us and have appreciated the fact that uh, I, I'm comfortable there. It's a nice place. It's something that is uh, that's good to come home to. I feel that it reflects us a little bit, and so I'm always at a, a, a bit of a joy to be able to gather with um, with Kelly at the house or something like that. The house is a comfort spot for me. Having said all that, I have never in my life experienced a passion for any home that I've lived in the way the author talks about the temple of God here. Nor, frankly, have I ever really met anybody that has expressed that kind of passion. 
I've known people that I thought have been a little too attached to their homes, a little too attached to their physical things that they own, but I've never really known anybody that is as passionate about a building as our author here is passionate about the temple of God. Now, I do want to clarify, that's exactly what we are talking about here in Psalm 84, if you have your Bibles open. How lovely is your dwelling place? The dwelling place that's in mind here by the author is, of course, the temple itself. And so here we have the author sitting back. You can picture him. I think that this works well if you look at the whole psalm in terms of imagining somebody, uh, the hill of uh, the Valley of Kidron kind of separates the Gethsemane, the hill of Gethsemane from the temple itself, and you can kind of picture the author sitting there looking over the Kidron Valley, kind of at the temple, and being in awe and being uh, wowed by what he's looking at. So you've got the, the dwelling place of God here. The, 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 how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. He's looking at this temple building, and by all accounts, now this would have been the first temple that would have been built. Uh, Solomon would have built it, and by all accounts, according to the scriptures, and even uh, some contemporary uh, recounts, accounts that we have, it was a absolute wonder. It really was a marvel. It was not technically one of the seven ancient wonders, but it should have been. I mean, it was, uh, by all accounts, it was really this marvelous feat of architecture, of design, of beauty, of, of craftsmanship. Everything about this temple really stood out and made itself absolutely beautiful. And the author captures some of that, but I don't want you to misunderstand the opening line. How lovely is your dwelling place? There's a possibility of hearing that as though the author is saying, wow, look at this building, how absolutely aesthetically pleasing it is. How lovely is it? It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. That's kind of implied, but that's not really the, the sense of the word. The sense of the word is, is how, how I am attracted to it. This is my beloved temple. It is, how do I feel about this temple? I am in love with the temple. In other words, the author here is not remarking on the objective qualities of the temple. Look at how great and grand it is. He's rather saying, I am so attracted to this temple. I am so attracted to this building. I am overcome with excitement by that. And that certainly is what he means in verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Um, the, the author's trying to communicate something here, and, and, and you'll miss the essence of the psalm if you don't capture the passion and the longing that the psalmist has here, and he's trying to communicate. I, I am so excited about this, the, the temple that is here. I'm so overcome. This is, he's so giddy with joy that he's almost becoming faint. He's all, he feels like he's passing out that he is so excited about the building. He's so excited about this temple and the presence. He says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's not just, it's his heart. It's his flesh. It's his soul. It's desires. It's his passion. What he's communicating here is, is it everything about me? Everything is drawn to this building. Everything that I desire is, is attracted to her. He is locked on with every part of who he is in passion for this. Now, sitting across the valley, he's looking at the temple, marveling at it, and he sees the birds that are flying around the temple. And he says, they've got the right job. 
Look at how lucky they are. They get to, now these are the regular birds that are nesting in the eaves and, and building places in the roofs and stuff like that, sitting on the roof. So even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself. Now, if you've read the scriptures often enough, you'll run into the, some details about the sparrow. Uh, the sparrow in particular is a, an almost useless bird. It's, it has no value. By Jesus' time, they were selling two sparrows for a penny. And yes, that's one of our pennies. The sparrows are, they, they have no value. Swallows are the things that are flying around all the time. They have, they're the most energetic of the birds around the Mideast at that time period. And so they're the ones that can never settle down, never come to rest, except... Here in the temple, they finally find their rest. And I love the picture that even the weakest and the most vulnerable can find a home here in the temple. The temple of God is set up in such a way as to give refuge even for the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society, pictured here by the sparrow and the, and the swallow. Now, the sparrow and the swallow, they find their rest at your altars, O Lord our God. Don't misjudge this building, but what it is that the author is so consumed with. It's not just the architectural wonder of the building. He's well aware that here, within the architecture of the building, are are the sacrifices, are the, the, the offerings that take place at the temple, at the altar, And because of those offerings, reconciliation between God and man is possible. It is because of what happens in this temple that the temple is so beloved by the author because it allows for that reconciliation. Look at the last line in verse three. My God and my king. My king, my God. The emphasis here being on the possessive character that the author is able to claim a hold upon God as his king and his Lord because of the, what has taken place at the altar, because God himself has reconciled himself to man because of what's at the altar there. So you have the conclusion in verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever singing your praise. This is actually his conclusion about the birds. The birds have a good Why? Because they are forever in this glorious building that I am so in love with, that I am so attracted to, that I am so passionate about, this dwelling place of God. They have it good because they are always present there. Not only them, but beginning in verse 5 through 7, the author then tracks for us the pilgrims who are on their way to the temple. Because they're going to the temple, because they have in their mind the vision of the temple, they carry with them that passion and all the blessings of that passion in such that even when they go through the valley of Baca, um, we're not quite sure, scholars are not quite sure where exactly the valley of Baca is, but it's clear from this reference and other spots that it is a very arid, um, a very desolate place. And so it's, it's a dangerous place. It's a place where nobody would want to go. But because of the pilgrims that are on their way to the temple of the Lord, because of that vision, that picture of the temple of God, they carry with them, even the Valley of Baca teems with life. 
The Valley of Baca looks like a, an, an oasis in the desert because of the pilgrims that pass through it on their way to the temple. They have locked in this picture of the beauty of the temple of our Lord. And of course, all this comes to fruition. All this comes to a high point in that passage. When I read it, it's probably the text that you were recognized a little bit in verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. A poetic language, but it's easy to see what the author means. A day in your presence, a day in the temple is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now sure, it's poetic language. And it's a good metaphor to picture. You know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather have some menial task. I'd rather be reduced to almost anything so that I can be in the temple of the Lord than to do anything else. If you have your Bibles, you can look in verse 1 all the way at the beginning of verse 1. Before we started reading, we are told that this text is written by the sons of Korah. We're not told a lot about the sons of Korah, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we are told that the sons of Korah are the gatekeepers of the temple of God. At least two of the four entrances towards the temple, the sons of Korah are the gatekeepers. They're not just speaking metaphorically here. They're not just speaking poetically when they say, I'd rather do my job which is to simply sit at the gates of Christ, at the gates of the temple, than to do anything else in the whole world. Yes, they're speaking poetically, and yes, they're speaking in a metaphor that each of us are supposed to grab a hold of for ourselves and say, boy, do I yearn in that kind of a way. But it's also a physical reality for the sons of Korah. They actually are the gatekeepers, and they are saying, I'd rather be right here where I am than to do anything else in all of the world. We're looking at the book of Psalms this summer because what my hope is is that we will see ourselves in the same kind of situations that the psalmist finds himself in and maybe be able to learn how it is that we can lean into the Lord, how we can lean into God's presence in the same way that the author leans into God. So we need to identify first if we can find ourselves in the same situation as a psalmist. And I have to tell you the truth, I've never heard anybody passionate about Hebron Church the way this guy is passionate about the temple. And I'm not sure I'd want to. Uh, we have a beautiful facility. We are, we are blessed beyond measure, and we need to give thanks for the generations of the people that have come before us that have provided for us this wonderful place, this building, the one up the hill, so that we can worship and so that we can praise the Lord together. And I know that there are people that enjoy the building and appreciate the building, but I don't know anybody that gets so giddy with joy that they're just on the edge of passing out every time they come to church. That's just not the way we roll. How is it that we can appreciate the text that is before us? One of the perks of being a pastor is that I get invited to people's houses. 
occasionally, and it happens, and I get the and people on their best behavior, and I get to see the beauty of their house, and I get to have good food and good fellowship and those kind of things, and I always look around, and I usually appreciate the house or something about the house, and I'm able to talk about it, but overwhelmingly, what I appreciate about being invited into somebody's house is not their house. It's the people that occupy the house. What makes the building so wonderful for me, what makes the visit so appreciative on my behalf is not the food, it's not the architecture of the building, it's not what's going on, it's who dwells in the building. That's what I'm attracted to. And of course, that's exactly what the author here is trying to portray for us as well. He's not talking about a physical building. He's focusing on our attention upon who is there in the physical building. How lovely is your dwelling place? It's lovely not because of the beautiful architecture, not because it was such a magnificent building, and it really was, not because it was a, a, a unique in all of the Middle East, because it was, not for any of those reasons is it lovely, but because it is God's dwelling place. It is where God is that drives the whole rest of this passage. The text, the psalmist, is not really talking about how lucky the birds are because they get to hang out in this beautiful building. He's saying how lucky the birds are because they get to hang out with who's in the beautiful building. The guy says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper here than do anything else because here is where not the building is, but here is where our God is. This picks up on a theme of scripture that I think is underplayed all too often, and I encourage you, I'd love for you to dwell upon it a little bit more, and that is the idea, the running theme throughout scripture of, of the dwelling place of God, God dwelling with his people. Now, the central figure of all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus Christ. And the central act of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the cross of Jesus Christ and the redemption, the sacrifice that is present there and our salvation that is procured in that spot. Don't ever misjudge that. That is the overarching key moment within all of redemptive history, the scriptural message. But why? Why did Christ sacrifice himself? Why did the Father send him? What is, okay, we needed to be redeemed. All very true, because of the depth of our sin, absolutely. But what is the motive that God has driven us for? It again is woven through the scriptures and it finds its high point here in verse one of Psalm 84 when he says, how lovely is your dwelling place. The scriptures urge for us to think of the desire of God to dwell with his people and to have his people well with him. From the very beginning of the scriptures, in Genesis chapter one, and particularly in Genesis chapter two, we have this picture of Eden. 
And we normally wrap around, as we should, the beauty of Eden. Uh, what, what the Garden of Eden represents for us is a paradise. And it's supposed to be seen as the beauty of, of everything that is there and the marvel of the, of the streets of gold and the joy of the rivers that run through it and the harvest of the, of the fruits and the bounty that is present there. All that is true. But what makes the Garden of Eden this paradise that the scriptures yearn to and look back to consistently is that that's where Adam and Eve met with God. It was God's presence in the, in the garden that made the garden stand out so specially. And consequently, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they are tossed out of the garden, yes, they are separated from all those blessings that they are talking about, but the great fear, the great trauma of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden is being tossed away from God's presence. And it is that desire for God to dwell with his people and for his people to dwell with him that then captures the whole rest of the narrative of the scriptures. When Moses is being sent out to lead the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years, he says, God, don't send me out without you. Don't send me from this place without your presence. And God said, fine, I will not. And so you have the glory cloud of God, that pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud during the day, the physical manifestation of God that is at the center of the Israelites' camp every single day so that consistently the Israelites knew of God's dwelling with them and their journey to Canaan their journey to the promised land. What marked the promised land was not the fact that it was flowing with milk and honey and that it had all the fruits and the vegetables and all the glorious things that marked Canaan as something that would draw the Israelites to it. What marked Canaan land was that that was where they were going to be with God. God would meet them and be with them in the promised land. That's why it is so filling. That's why it's so overcome with all the blessings and the goodness because God is present in Canaan. And of course, that's physically brought forward when Solomon builds the temple. And you've got chapters and chapters describing the glory of the temple. But everybody gets excited. Everybody wraps themselves around the glory of the temple when at the dedication, Solomon prays for the temple and God manifestly fills the temple with his glory. With that cloud of glory, he fills the temple, and that's when everybody comes with a great awe and understanding because, yes, here, God is present with his people. He is dwelling with his people. Of course, the greatest manifestation of this, the most tangible expression of God dwelling with his people is the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to his own, and though his own rejected him, nevertheless, he came to dwell with his people. And it was the very physical presence of God, Jesus Christ himself, that was dwelling with his people. But then after the ascension of Christ, once he died, was resurrected, and went back to heaven, he promised that he would not leave his disciples without the presence of God. And so you have that first remarkable moment, the turning of the church age, the description of the whole Pentecost, the presence of the Holy Spirit falling upon the people and filling each and every believer. 
And so in every real way that we can articulate it, God is present in this place right here because he is present right here. And he is present within every single Christian in this room. And Paul grabs that metaphor, that understanding that God is dwelling with his people even now. And so then he looks at this church body and he says, this is the body of Christ. This really is the dwelling of God in this place. And of course, all of this is culminated in the book of Revelation where we get that glimpse into eternity and we get a glimpse into the everlasting character of our God and what do we see there? God dwelling with his people. They will be my people and I will be their God. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. Why? Because God will be in the midst of the people. They don't need a sun to shine. We don't need lamps because God will be here dwelling with his people. It's a theme from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures, and what's being captured here in Psalm 84 is the yearning, the longing that the author has for the presence, the physical manifestation of God himself. I want to be where God is dwelling. How do we capture that longing today? Again, no criticism of anyone, mere observation. I don't see people yearning for the presence of God. To see people longing to be in the spot where God is dwelling. To see us as we are interacting with each other as though I am interacting with one who is indwelt by God himself that when I come face to face with you, I come face to face with my God who promises to dwell with me. How do we capture that longing? Well, I think we have to see it first and foremost as a biblical theme, perhaps the biblical theme. What is God doing in this world? He is preparing things in such a way that he can dwell with us, that we can dwell with him. And of course, that takes us through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why the cross, so that we might dwell with the Lord. It is my hope, it is my prayer, that coming from today into the 4th of July weekend, you will be thinking, you will be asking yourself, dear Lord, I want my heart to yearn, I want to be so excited that I almost faint over the idea of dwelling with you now and forever. Amen.